Father, thanks for being a good and holy God to us as we just sang that we could behold you, that there is none other like you. As we open up your word this morning, God, would you speak to our hearts? Spirit, would you comfort us where we need to be comforted? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you change us? God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be soft, to be transformed to the image and likeness of your son. We need you this morning. Would you meet us in this space? We ask it in your son's name. Amen. How many of you have seen this piece of art before? Only a couple of you. Okay. Anybody know who this is by? Okay, Banksy. So if you don't know who Banksy is, you're, you're, uh, you're in good company because nobody actually knows who Banksy is. Banksy is a graffiti artist that came up about 30 years ago in the UK, in Bristol, England. And he's been going around and putting graffiti in different places around the world. And his art has become so popular. And because he's not revealing who he is, people are really interested in his work and what he does. So much so that in 2010, Time Magazine voted him as one of the most influential people in the world. And if you saw that, that uh, article years ago, there's all these different people with their, their faces on, in the article, and Banksy has a bag over his head because he doesn't want to reveal who he is as an artist because graffiti is illegal. You cannot do it. You should not do it. And Banksy is a stencil graffiti artist, meaning he goes home and he stencils out this piece and so he can go quickly and spray it on somewhere overnight and then just pops up in the morning. And his art is provocative. It often has political undertones to it. It's doing something to the people. This is probably his second most well-known piece of art. It's called sometimes the flower thrower or love is in the air. It doesn't have an official title because he does it and then it's there and then he goes. And Banksy says this, even about some of the way he does his artwork. This is a quote from him. He says, as soon as I cut my first stencil, I could feel the power. He goes, I also like the political edge. He's talking about graffiti. He says, all graffiti is low-level dissonance, but stencils have an extra history. They've been used to start revolutions and stop wars. What is Banksy trying to do in this piece? It's helpful if you know the context of where he spray-painted this wall. This is the West Bank wall that separates Palestine and Israel. And he did this in 2003 when those nations were warring against each other. They're literally fighting against each other. And so what Banksy is doing in this moment is he's going, man, instead of throwing bombs at each other, instead of throwing grenades at each other, because clearly that's a rioter, clearly this is, this is meant to do something in us, instead of throwing bombs, what if we threw beauty at each other? It's meant to do something somewhat subversive and shock us into change. And this is specific. It's specific to Israel and Palestine in the moment at the time. But if you zoom out, it's really broadly taken in the context of like, yeah, that was a specific moment that he was addressing politically. But also you go, man, we do this all the time to each other, don't we? Like instead of our marriages, instead of our roommate conflict, instead of fights with friends, when we get insulted, instead of returning an insult for insult, can we return beauty for an insult like the Bible says in Proverbs? 
flowers? Like, what if we threw flowers instead of bombs at each other? It should evoke some type of change in us. That's the purpose of what Banksy is doing in his artwork. Banksy is using apocalyptic painting. Right? We talked about this. We're in this book of Revelation, and John is using an apocalyptic genre. We talked about this last week as we kicked off this series in the book of Revelation. We're going to be going through it for 12 weeks total, kind of two chapters at a time thematically. And Mike did a great job of kicking us off of what the book of Revelation is actually trying to do. Apocalypse is a Greek word. It just means to uncover or reveal or where we get the name Revelation. And so for us to understand what's being said here, that's often confused as we read it at face value, we have to understand the genre, just like we have to understand the genre of what Banksy is trying to do in his artwork. Christopher Rowland, who's an expert in the book of Revelation, an expert in apocalyptic literature, says this. He says, we should not ask of apocalypses, what do they mean? Rather, we should ask, how do the images and the designs work? How do they affect us and change our lives? And that's how we need to look at the book of Revelation. The church and the subculture of the church has been confused for a long time as we read this book at face value and we start to dissect it and we act like it's a code book for the end times and it's some type of secret code that we can figure out when Jesus is coming back. Let me let you in. Spoiler alert, nobody knows. That's what Jesus himself said. And so we get confused as we're reading this book often. And for us to understand, man, we have to keep it in the genre that John wrote it in. It's apocalyptic language. You go back to this Banksy image Again, lots of times, um, if you saw this image in the turmoil of what was happening in Israel and Palestine, and you walked up and you said, okay, what do you think in that right corner? What kind of flower is that? And all you focused on in this art was that flower, and you fought about it, and you debated about it, and you go, no, no, that's a daisy. No, I think that's a tulip. I'm not really sure. And that's all you got out of the art. You're probably missing the point. And sometimes that's what we do in the book of Revelation. We fight about these things that are minor instead of going, what is it trying to do in us? How is God's word trying to change us to wake us up in our apathy? So as we continue to open up God's word and look at the book of Revelation, we need to have that in the backdrop of our understanding. For example, because again, Mike said this last week, if you weren't here, he kicked off the book of Revelation, tried to help us understand what it's actually doing as we dive into it. And John wrote at a time where apocalyptic genre or literature would have made sense to the culture. He's pulling from Jewish imagery that the original hearers would understand. And he's pulling from Roman culture that they are sitting in at the time. So that's not our culture. So we read it and go, is this guy on drugs? This doesn't, I don't understand this. This is weird imagery and this, like I, I don't get it. And it's an artistic play at understanding what's actually happening. So, for example, we saw this last week in chapter one. We'll see it continually through the Bible. John uses the number seven constantly in the book of Revelation. And for us as Americans sitting in 2023, we read seven and we think it's a digit, it's numerical. That's kind of how we read it. And so we read it in a way that we go like, how are there seven spirits? 
It says the seven spirits of God. We go, no, no, no. Like the Bible says there's one spirit. God is in three distinct persons in one, and he only has one Holy Spirit. That's clear. Like how, how we start to think, how is it seven spirits? But in the original uh, document that the people would understood, seven was used way more as an adjective. And so seven meant perfection. It meant wholeness, completeness. So when John is saying the seven spirits of God, he's using it as an adjective, not a numerical actual number. He's going, this God is, his spirit is perfect. It's complete. And so if we miss some of the subtext in this, we're going to be wildly confused. We have to understand the genre to make sense of what is revelation. Again, not trying to to mean, but what's it trying to do in us? So if that's the point of apocalyptic language and literature, how is revelation supposed to change us? If that's actually the question, I'm going to give a purpose statement for the book that we'll keep coming back to every single week. I pulled this from Redemption Flagstaff, Anthony G. I really like his language here. This is what he says. This is the purpose of revelation. It's to disciple Christians to be discerning, dissonant worshipers and witnesses of Jesus. That's the whole point. That's what we need to get out of the book of Revelation to disciple Christians. John is helping Christians, the church, to understand how to be discerning in a culture that's confusing, in a culture that says, no, Babylon or Rome is the way. You should follow that. And it's seeped into the churches, which we're going to see today in chapter 2 and chapter 3. So to be discerning of where we're running after our idolatry and then to be dissident against that, to say, I'm not going to follow the way of the dragon, is language he uses. I'm going to follow the way of the lamb. I'm not going to follow the way of Babylon, which is actually Rome. I'm going to follow the way of the new Jerusalem. We have to press against that culture, which is so pervasive then and pervasive now. And because of that, that makes us become worshipers, to give all of our worth, ascribe everything we have to Jesus. We're going to see that next week in chapters 4 and 5 in God's throne room, and we become witnesses to the surrounding world. Man, if we don't need to understand that in our cultural, in our, in our cultural moment right now, I don't, I don't know what else we need. We need to be people that are discipled to understand how to be discerning, to be dissonant, to be worshipers, and to be witnesses to the person of Jesus. So that's where the book is going to take us. And this morning, we're going to look at chapters 2 and chapters 3. It's a lot of text. We're going to be preaching through this thematically, which is a lot of how scholars treat it. So we're not going to go into the minutia of the details, but rather zoom out and go, what is it trying to do? What's, what's John trying to say to these churches, and what is he trying to say to us? And the big idea from chapters 2 and 3 that we're going to pull out this morning, if you're taking notes, is this, that the Spirit speaks and the church listens. That the Spirit, God is speaking, and our role as the church, as God's body, the big C church, not this room specifically, but all that would bow their knee to the Lamb, to Jesus, subscribe to Him, give their life to Him, have their life traded for Him, our job is to listen. It's to listen to the Spirit speaking to us and to make adjustments and to change. As we unpack chapters 2 and 3, Uh, Eugene Peterson says this. I'm going to be quoting him a lot. I'm reading a book 
uh, that he wrote called Reverse Thunder, which is a, a prayer kind of meditation through Revelation, and it's just so, so good. He's talking about this, like why do we have to have the churches in chapters two and three, the order of the book? He says this. He says, we would prefer to go directly from the awesome vision of Christ in Revelation 1, which we saw last week, to the glorious ecstasies of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, which we'll see next week, and then on to the grand victorious battles against the dragon's wickedness. It's Revelation 12 and 14, but we can't do it. The church has to be negotiated first. God's people called the church are his light, are the mechanism he uses until he returns to tell the world, to be witnesses, to be worshipers to the surrounding world that does not know Jesus. And so we have to get some things dealt with before we can go and see what he wants to tell us in the rest of the book. So as we open up your Bible, if you have a Bible, it's already there. You can open up to chapter 2. We're going to start there. We're going to look at chapters 2 and 3. And there is a framework or a pattern that John uses for every single church he addresses. He's going to address seven churches in this section. And here is the framework. At the beginning, he's going to give a description of Jesus, and, and uh, he's going to announce who he's writing to directly. These are actual places. They're actual churches. It was in Asia Minor, which is now uh, modern-day Turkey, and this was a circulatory letter that would have gone around to all the churches. Again, these are smaller churches. They're kind of house churches, and so to understand, man, what are they dealing with? And then that would continue to go and get passed along. And the letters are not just in 2 and 3. All of Revelation are for these churches and the broader church. And so it's gonna start with a description of Jesus, which is a, a reflection to Revelation 1, this idea of who Jesus is, and then it's gonna be followed up with these three things. There's gonna be affirmation in every single one of these addresses. Affirmation is this language that God's saying, I know. Like, I, I know what's going on with you. We have a God that sees us. Sometimes we can pretend he doesn't know us, he doesn't really see us, but we have a God of the Bible that actually sees us and he knows. And so some of these affirmations are gonna be like, I know the good things you're doing. Or, I know that you're suffering, I see it. I know you don't feel like I see it, but I actually see it. It's gonna start with an affirmation and then it's gonna move to a reformation. Even the good things, but I have this against you. Like, these are good things. You're doing good things, but actually, this is some stuff you got to change. If we're going to get this right, this is stuff you have to adjust. You don't see it, but I see it, and we need to correct some of these things. There's affirmation, there's reformation, and then there's motivation. And these motivations look different in every single church. This motivation of like, man, if you actually turn, if you actually repent and, and stop doing these things, I'm telling you that you're doing, as you turn, you're actually going to experience real life. Not only here and now, but forever. And so there's motivation for trying to figure out how to follow the way of the lamb instead of the way of the dragon. Every single section will follow suit. There's seven churches. There's two churches that really don't have a strong reformation. They're actually doing pretty well, but they need some encouragement because of their circumstances, because of their suffering. And so that's the way that they get reformed in that space. And then uh, there's affirmation, reformation, and motivation. And then it's followed by this statement at the end of every one of the addresses, he who has ears let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word hear in the original language is this idea of consider what's being said. Consider what's being said. Don't ignore it. Don't push it down, but actually listen to it and change. Make a difference. It's an invitation for a deeper, richer way to experience God. But it's our choice as a church. Do we have ears that are open to hear the things that Jesus is saying to us? Scott McKnight, in his book, Revelation for the Rest of Us, which is a great read. He had, he's been collecting and teaching Revelation for almost the last 20 years, and he released a book even last year that's just really readable. It's really helpful. So again, there's tons of resources. If you feel confused, go on our app and click on the Revelation series. There's all types of things you can listen to. There's things you can read, walk alongside of in this journey. And in his book, he talks about these two chapters and he looks broadly at what's going on in the church. And he has these four things talking about the reformation piece that the Bible is giving us. He says, one, all these churches, their love has been disordered. We're going to see that in Ephesians. Their love has been disordered. Secondly, their teachings were distorted. They started following false teaching in the midst of their worship. And then because of that, number three, their worship was corrupted. They're not giving God the worth he needs in the way it's meant to be given. And then number four, their behaviors were inconsistent in the way of the Lamb. I think that's just a helpful broad picture of what's going on in these two chapters. So again, let's jump into it. Verse Two of chapter 2. I'm not going to read the address specifically with Jesus at the beginning. and I'm going to go straight to some of the affirmation and reformation. I'm not going to read the end just for sake of time. So we can walk through all seven of these churches. I'm going to read a section and then I'm going to pull out like what is going on here and what do we need to be aware of here. So the first church we look at is in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 2. It says this, I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Man, that's a good start. Verse four, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you repent, I will come to you. If you do not repent, I'm sorry, I will, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Ephesus is the book where we get the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul writes. Most scholars believe that John was writing in Ephesus when he writes 1 John. We just finished covering that in the summer. And in 1 John, you saw him have kind of this, this big idea of like, man, don't fall into this false teaching. There's these Gnostic teachers. There's division in the church. And I want you to be aware of this false teaching and press against it. But also, you need to know how to love. And it feels like they got the first half of that message right because they don't have false teachers in their midst. He, he affirms them in that, but they've forgotten what it means to love, right? Their theology is tight. Their doctrine is on point. They're not being uh, persuaded by false teachers, but they've forgotten how to love. And this just reminds me of 1 Corinthians. Man, we can do all the right things. We can have all the knowledge in the world. But if we fail to love, we're missing it we're missing it. 
And they were missing it. They had forgotten how far they had fallen. They were forgetting what grace actually meant to engage grace in the world. And that's just helpful for us to be reminded of. Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ in 1951, which was a parachurch organization that did a lot of evangelism and discipleship all over the world, whenever Dr. Bright was asked by somebody, how can I pray for you if they bumped into him? This was the verse he always quoted. Revelation 2, 4. Would you pray that I would never lose my first love? Man, because you can get caught up in all these things, and doctrine is good, and theology is good, and all those things are good, but if we forget how to love people, man, we're missing it. And so the encouragement is to, man, don't, don't forget your first love. Some of us come to Jesus, and man, we're just on fire. We're so excited, and then over time, we lose that excitement, and he's saying, don't forget that. Stay connected to me. It's about your love for me and your love for people. Let's keep going. Smyrna is one of the churches, as well as Philadelphia, that actually has some kind of good report. There's not a ton of uh, bad things going on, but let's continue to read. Verse 9, let's jump down to that. It says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, but yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews, but they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. He said, I, I know your afflictions. I, I know your poverty. You're feeling poor. You're feeling drained. You're small. But do you know that in my kingdom, you're actually rich? And some of us in our context, man, we feel poor. It might not be fan, financially poor, but we feel like, man, I'm just single, and I'm tired of being single, and I was in another wedding, and I feel like I, I want to have a spouse. That's not wrong to want to have a spouse. And, and sometimes in our culture, especially the subculture of the church, it's like marriage is varsity, everything else is JV. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. But we could feel poor, we could feel alone, we could feel afflicted, and God's going, actually, you're rich. There's something beautiful about your singleness. There's something beautiful that you can take advantage of now. Don't see how the world sees as far as rich or poor, but see how the kingdom sees. And then he goes like, you're, you're not done suffering, actually. <laughs> like, you're actually going to suffer some more. And so in the midst of suffering some more and feeling like, man, if God would just give me X, Y, or Z, then I'll be happy. He's going like, no, 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 like keep trusting me. Keep leaning into me. The kingdom has a different way of looking at things than the world has and keep trusting me. It's interesting to me that Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two poorest churches, probably the most small churches in this set, and they're actually the ones doing the best. That's interesting. That's counterculture to uh, our situation, right? We need to be aware of that. Continue to lean in to suffering. Be faithful. He says, even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. Let's look at the next church, Pergamum, verse 13. He says this to the church in Pergamum, I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. Pergamum in this culture was kind of like the Vegas, man. It was wild, 
He says, yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, even to the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that ate ate food, sacrificed to the idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also uh, have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now again, here's what John is doing. This is why apocalyptic language and, and genre is really important to us. He's, he's pulling a, a popular person from the Jewish uh, uh, literature and the apocalyptic literature. He's talking about Balaam, who's not a real person in Rome at the time, but he's referring back to what Balaam did, and they would understand that in their culture. Balaam shows up in the book, or, uh, the book of Numbers in the Bible, and he follows the god, the false god, Baal. And he engages sexual acts as a part of worship. When you worship Baal, that was a part of worshiping Baal. And he bleeds it in to the nation of Israel. And God goes, that's not okay. And so this was happening in the church of Pergamum. And they're probably going like, listen, I I, I don't know if you've done this in your life, in your Christian life, where if you are in a a very wild culture, you can start comparing what you're doing to everyone else. And so it's like, well, I'm not sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend, but we're messing around. But at least I'm not doing that. And you start comparing. And what God is saying in this text, he's going like, any form of sexual immorality, that that language in the Greek is, is the word porneia where we get our word pornography from. It's a junk drawer term in the Greek that means anything outside of the covenant of one man and one woman in a married covenant relationship with each other, anything outside of that sexually is out of bounds and not in God's design, not in his good design. And he's saying, man, you've bled into believing that some of this activity is okay in worship. And he's going, it's not It's actually making you less human. Pornography and doing things that aren't in line with what God says to do is actually hurting you. It's not for your best. Let's go down to the next church, Thyatira, in verse 19. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality by eating food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her onto a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. 
This church, again, John is using apocalyptic language. He's using the language of Jezebel. She's not an actual person in the time of his writing. She shows up in First and Second Kings. She is the wife of King Ahab. And if you know anything about the Old Testament history, what she does is she comes into the nation of Israel, marrying King Ahab. She goes like, I know we're supposed to follow this God, Yahweh, but we should start following these other gods too. Like, let's just, let's, let's throw them into the mix. And she's so seductive that King Ahab agrees and starts going, yeah, I think that, let's try that. that. That might be a good idea. And it's not a good idea. She advocates and begins to allow divided worship. And if you know anything about the Bible, anything about this God, he goes, that's, that's not okay with me. I'm not okay with divided worship. He doesn't do that because he's a selfish God, but because he's the only one that should occupy the throne of our lives. He's the only one that's actually worthy of our worship, what we give ourselves to. And in the midst of this church, it's going like, man, you've, you're doing what Jezebel did. You have this divided worship. And again, it's hovered around sexual immorality in the midst of your worship, and, and it's not okay. It's not the way you were designed to live. Verse 21, he says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. When you start to have a heart of divided worship, what starts to happen is your heart starts to become callous. And that's what's happening with her. Like, she's unrepentant. God is so gracious. God is so patient. He gives us chance after chance after chance after chance. But as we have callous hearts and we go, no, I want to continue to hold on to this thing. God, you can have the rest of my life, but you can't have this. That, that's not the way we we're created to live. And that's what's happening in this church. Let's jump down to chapter 3. We see this church addressed at Sardis. It says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains in you that is about to die. For I have found the deeds are unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. This church, man, they, they look real good on the outside, right? They have smiles on their face, but on the inside, they're hanging on by a thread. And they're kind of they're kind of dead inside. And this language can even be confusing. It goes, wait a second, you just said they're dead, but then you tell them to like, not die, like hang on to the thing before you fully die. Again, it's kind of like this idea of like you can have a great looking marriage on the outside, you're smiling, you have all the vehicles, the big house, all the white picket fence, and you can be happy and everybody would look on the outside and go, man, you're doing really well, but you go like, my marriage is dead. It's not actually dead, you're still married, but man, it, it's, it's hollow. It's not doing what it's supposed to do, and that's the case with this church. Man, they look good on the outside. Some of us, we can walk into this room, and we can smile at each other, the passing of the peace, and say hello and feel good. And then on the, outside, on the inside, we're going like, man, we just feel hollow inside. I don't feel connected to Jesus. I feel like we were at one point, but right now, we're just kind of, and he's going, wake up. It doesn't have to be this way. Man, when we're all asleep, I know my wife and I, we have uh, two sons in college. One of our sons came home uh, a couple days ago at two in the morning with some of his friends. And like, I, I, I stumbled downstairs. I'm not awake 
I'm not in a good frame of reference to engage a conversation with my 18-year-old in that moment, like, because I'm, I'm not awake, right? And some of us need to wake up. We need to stop being apathetic, which we're going to see in Laodicea in a minute. We need to take Jesus seriously and stop playing the game. Like, if you're just going to play the game, don't do that. That's not going to be helpful. You need to wake up. And some of us need some smelling salts in our relationship with Jesus to wake us up to what is true. Stop caring about your image on the outside. Jesus cares about your heart. He cares about your heart. Let's keep going. Philadelphia, verse, halfway through verse 8, says to the church in Philadelphia, I know your deeds. I see uh, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of you who are in the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Again, Philadelphia is like Smyrna. They don't have a lot of negative stuff going on in this text. But he reminds them, I am with you, right? Some of us, were in situations, we're in suffering, and we're, we're actually getting slandered against, or we're getting talked about by our boss or our friends or our coworkers, and like, it's just, everything inside of us wants to defend ourselves, but instead of defending ourselves, can we be true to Jesus and go, you're going to be my defense. I'm going to trust you to defend me, and I'm going to continue to love to the best of my Ability. doesn't mean you can't speak up. That's not what it's saying. But if you think you're your defense, Jesus is a better defender than you are. Keep trusting him in the midst of your situation and in the midst of your suffering. And then the last church, Laodicea, verse 15. This is maybe the most well-known out of this, these, these two chapters. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one. Or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and wear white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The Church of Laodicea was known actually for their eye doctor practice. They had the eye doctor capital in that time. They were known for their extreme fashion and they were known for their wealth. In the world's context, they were doing well, but do you see what Jesus is doing? He's going like, you think you have the best eye doctors, you're actually blind. You think you have the best fashion, you're actually naked. You think you have the most wealth, you're actually poor. And they're just 
affluent and feel like in the text. Again, you can see, they say like, man, because we're doing well, we don't have a need for anything else. And man, how much do we line up with this in America? Right, we have money compared to the rest of the world. We just can kind of coast and feel good about ourselves. And Jesus is going, no, that's not the thing that gives you your security. That's not the thing. The world would say that's the thing that gives you security. How many zeros you have after numbers in your bank account. But God goes, no, it's actually me. Like, I'm your security. And what happens to us is we drift into this apathy, this indifference because of our affluence. And it is a dangerous thing, a dangerous thing to do. Right? The college and young adult ministry here at our church is called Zeal based on the, the verse in Romans, that, that you wouldn't lack having zeal. And that's exactly what this church is lacking. They're just coasting. They're, they, they know Jesus, so everything else is fine. They're just going to live by the culture. And he's going, no, you're not hot and you're not cold. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And some of us just need to hear this because we've been living in both worlds, one foot in and one foot out. We go, yes, I need Jesus for my salvation. Maybe I grew up in church. I believe in Jesus. But then you're acting a totally different way. And some of you come into this room and you act one way and you're all about glorifying Jesus, but then come tomorrow, Monday, whether you're in your school, whether you're in your job, whether you're with your family, and you act a total different way. You're just caught up by the people you're around. And what God is saying to the church in Laodicea and what he's saying to us is stop living that way. Man, one foot in, one foot out. That's like the worst you can do, he says. Just get in or get out. It's like trying to get on a bus that's moving and you just have one foot on the bus and one foot off. Like, that's terrible. Don't do that. Get all out or get all in. Stop playing games with God. This is what the Bible says. Because why? Because that's actually where you're going to find life. You're playing this game and you're trying to put one foot in and one foot out and it is going to crush you. It's not the way you were designed. Now again, looking at these seven churches... This environment was hostile that they were living in. I mean, the, the, the language of Babylon that's getting used specifically about what's going on in the Roman cultures where these churches are sitting in real time. They were a cultural juggernaut. They were influencing every sphere of the culture. And so what do the churches need? They need discipleship to be trained to live differently. And so do we. Eugene Peterson says this about this idea of getting discipled or trained into the way of these seven churches. He says this, they need to be trained to love, to suffer, to tell the truth, to be holy, to be authentic, to be on mission, to worship the things and praise God, receiving gifts and serve God. The church is the community of people who explicitly and consciously submit themselves to the direction and the training of the Spirit so that excellence is pursued in these seven areas. And the text says, he who has an ear, let him uh, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we close this idea, this idea of hearing, I would just ask us, like, how, how's our posture at hearing? Like, if God wants to speak to us and we're all a mess, clearly we're all a mess and we need help, we need to see the blind things that we cannot see, do we have humble hearts? Do we have curious intentions? Are we honest to go, like, man, we need help? 
Do we have ears to hear what the Spirit says? When you're in a community of other people, big C church, doesn't need to be this church, but some type of church environment, some type of community that's following Jesus. Are you uh, uh, soft enough to listen to that feedback, to that pushback, to go, hey, actually, I'm kind of concerned about this area of your life. I love you, and I want the best for you. And what I see you doing and what I see you saying doesn't line up, and I care about you. When that type of information comes your way, do you go, you don't know, and you just go and find another community? You just go and find another church? Or do you lean in to go like, help me hear, Spirit, what you want to say through your word, through your people? Why do we commit ourselves to this community called the church? And all of us are committed at different levels. Some of you are here and you're serving, uh, and some of you just show up once a month. And so, like, it's all, we're all over the place. But why are we committed to this thing called church? You could be doing lots of things with your Sunday morning. You're here. Why do you go into different houses throughout the week for redemption communities? Why do you serve in the kids' area? Why do you uh, engage in this discipleship curriculum called Surge or, or See Jesus? Like, wh why do you do that? Some of us do it because we feel guilty, and we grew up thinking like, well, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. Some of us feel like it's checking a moral box, like if I show up at church, some of us feel like we're doing repentance because, man, we had a bad weekend, so I better get to church and kind of balance the scales. Some of us come because we're lonely and we feel like we need friends. There's all types of reasons to go to church and be involved in something called church. Let me explain to you what the Bible says of why we do this thing called church and community. We do this thing because we're trying to follow the way of the lamb. And we're not going to get this stuff anywhere else. You don't have to be involved in this church. It's where God calls you. But be involved in a church. If you're going to say you follow Jesus, you believe in him, you better get into a community that teaches this type of stuff. Because, again, we're all a mess. You see it from the text. Every single one of these churches have problems. They need encouragement. They're messed up. But it doesn't mean you just leave. It means that you actually press in and what you listen. You listen because we want to be people of a community that learns what it means to grow in love and suffering and truth-telling and holiness and authenticity and mission and worship and stewardship of following the way of the Lamb. And the church is the only place you get that. It's the only place you get it. Again, big C church, not building, not organization, followers of Jesus. And we need to be around followers of Jesus. Otherwise, we're gonna get swept up into this culture and we're going to lose our way. Do we have hearts to listen? Are our ears open to what God wants to say in and through our community? That's the goal and heart of the church. Last quote from Eugene Peterson as we finish. He says this. The church is the place where we come to find out what we're doing that is right. The place of affirmation. The church is the place where we find out what we're doing wrong. It's the place of correction. The church is the place where we come to hear the promise. It's the place of motivation. No Christian community can do without any part of this message. Do we have ears to hear this morning? I pray that we do. Let's pray. Father, would you be with us in this effort? God, the, ch the church is a mess because we're a mess. <laughs> And we recognize that, but the church is the community that we get to hear 
you speaking to us in all those areas. God, in all the areas of of people that we would want to become, of people of love and suffering and truth-telling and holiness and authenticity and mission and worship and stewardship. God, help us come back to that truth time and time again, whether it's this community or another one throughout our lifetime. May we be followers of you that are engaged in your community, and may we have ears to hear what you want to speak to us. We ask that you would do it in and through us. We pray it in your name. Amen.